welcome to this first session where we're going to look at the, the big story, the meta-narrative of Scripture. But first, I want to look at a word or a concept in philosophy called teleology. Maybe you've heard of it before. Maybe you haven't. Essentially, teleology is answering the question of goodness or purpose. What does it mean that something is good? And in our context, what does it mean to live a good life is what I mainly want to talk about in this first session. In order to determine whether something is good or not, you need to know its purpose. Now, imagine you're an alien species that has shown up on Earth for the first time and you come across a hammer. Now, in order to know whether or not it's a good or bad hammer, you'd have to know what its purpose, right? You'd have to know that hammers were designed for hammering in nails. So let's say the first hammer you come across is rusted a little bit. It's got it's beat up, it's nicked, it's chipped, but it is sturdy. It's got a good, you know, iron or steel head. I'm not sure what they make hammers out of. Uh, a good wooden handle and it hammers in nails. Well, right next to it is a golden hammer, literally made out of pure gold. Now, if you know anything about gold, you know it'd be too soft to hammer in nails. So, teleologically speaking, the first hammer is a good hammer. The second hammer is a poor hammer relative to its purpose. Now, a golden hammer could be useful for other things. You could sell it, turn it into you know, some kind of liquid asset or use it as a paperweight or something. But it's not a good hammer because hammers were made to drive in nails. When we talk about living a good life, living a fulfilling, meaningful, purposeful life, kind of hitting the nail on the head, so to speak. We need to know what the purpose of a human is in the same way you'd need to know what the purpose of a hammer is to determine whether or not a specific hammer is a good hammer. And unfortunately, far too few people stop to really contemplate and reflect on what it means to live a good life. What does it mean to be human? What is the purpose of the human being? What was God's intention when he created mankind? That's what I want to touch on here briefly. We're going to start at the very beginning in Genesis 1, where it all begins, in particular, verses 26 through 28, looking where, uh, where God creates mankind. It says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this is not a full teaching and exposition of that passage. And again, if you're not a believer and you're listening to this, just hang with me. But for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, this is an incredibly important passage, I believe, that frames the purpose for humanity. Of course, all the rest of scripture expounds on this, but I think there's a lot that we can mine out of this passage. The idea that we're made in God's image. Now, God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, coexisting among himself in a way that's hard for us to comprehend from eternity past to eternity future. God loves himself, so to speak, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is constant communion, constant fellowship, constant communication, uh, a constant mutual submission, if you will. And again, we're not going to get super deep theologically to break it down all these concepts. But it's out of this overflow of relationship that God creates mankind in his image. And that idea of image is really important, and there's so much depth to that. But one of the purposes, I believe, of being created in the image of God 
which is unique among all God's creation. It doesn't say that anything else was made in his image. Everything else is made to reflect him, we find out in Romans one twenty. But the fact that we're made in his image, in his likeness, means that we can, unique among all his creation, fellowship with him in a, in a unique way. That we are emotive in the way that he's emotive. That we, are, we have a consciousness in some of the ways that he has a consciousness and that we can communicate in the way that he communicates means that we can fellowship with him, enjoy relationship in a way that is different from, separate from all the rest of creation, that we can choose to love him, that we can receive love from him, that we can talk and listen. You see this with Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool, in the cool of the day, walking with him in the garden. You see that in Genesis 3. So being made in God's image, I believe, first and foremost, indicates a purpose for humanity to walk in relationship with God, or to use another word, fellowship. And I would argue as a, as a believer now for over 20 years, as having worked in ministry for the better part of 15 years, having studied the scriptures, lived life, parenting four boys, mentored hundreds of people now, I would argue that this is the primary purpose for which humanity was created. That is fellowship with God. And that's not just some catchy tagline that I'm supposed to say before we dive into the nuts and bolts of decision-making and mining out the next steps in life. I really believe that. And I would encourage you to do some soul-searching, to study the scriptures for yourself, to do some wrestling. What do you believe is at the core of the core of the core of humanity's purpose? There's a lot that is presented to us in terms of opportunities and lots of different messages that come our way in terms of why we are alive or what makes a life meaningful. But I would argue that this idea of relationship is at the core of it. And it's not just one relationship. The the God-man relationship is primary, but I believe that there are three relationships we see man placed in here in Genesis 1 and 2. The God-man relationship being the first. The second, though, is the man-man relationship, if you will. Adam with Eve, mankind among mankind, that we're made to be in fellowship, made to be in community with one another. And then the third is the man creation, the man earth, the man world relationship, that mankind is placed in this garden and given meaningful work to do right off the bat. And so you see this this state of shalom as the Hebrew word that's used, this peace, this wholeness, this rightness, everything's right with the world, mankind in fellowship with God in fellowship with one another, and then rightly stewarding the world around them. And then, of course, the the disobedience, the rebellion of Adam and Eve introduces the curse. And all three of these relationships are fundamentally broken. The God-man relationship is broken. The man-man relationship is broken. Immediately, they're blaming one another, and there's enmity among their children, and so on and so forth. And then the the man-creation relationship is broken as well, that now the, the earth will yield fruit for you only through blood, sweat, and tears, and so on. But it all starts with fellowship. It starts with this idea of proximity. And you see this thread that runs throughout the scriptures. God says, I will dwell among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Dozens and dozens of times from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, you see this in the heart of God, to be among his people, to fellowship with them. But that's not the only purpose for humanity that I see right here in this first passage we're looking at in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. The second is in this idea of having dominion, where it says that uh, you will subdue the earth and have dominion over it. 
Now, a lot of us have a difficult time with those terms. You, if you know your history, words like subduing, having dominion might conjure up 20th century dictators like Hitler and Mussolini and Pol Pot and Stalin and Mao and so on, who subdued through the use of force and coercion and manipulation and tremendous bloodshed. But that's not the kind of subduing and dominion that God is talking about here. And over and over again, you see as Jesus walks with his disciples that they misconstrued this notion. Jesus came to have authority. He came to have dominion. And they thought that that was going to look like what they had seen in their world with Caesar and those who'd gone before them to usurp, to exert influence through political domination. And they thought when Jesus was walking into Jerusalem that now he's going to dethrone the, the Romans. Now he's going to restore the political dominion of the Davidic Israel that we've read about and told stories about. And yet Jesus came in peacefully. He came out again later that day, came back in, was eventually betrayed, murdered, gave his life. And and the, the disciples didn't know how to grapple with this. And throughout his ministry, he had tried to train them, no, 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 to be the greatest, you must be the least. To be ruler of all, you must be servant of all. And I think this is the essence of dominion and subjection that we see in Genesis 1 is what Jesus displays throughout his lifetime in the Gospels. So what is what does it mean to have dominion over, to subdue? Well, I would suggest that it means to have dominion over in the same way that a gardener has dominion over a garden. And what's the gardener's purpose? The gardener's purpose is to bring about maximum beauty, maximum fruitfulness. And you don't do that by usurping. You don't do that by damaging. You do that by tending, by cultivating, by nourishing, by cherishing. And so that's the type of stewardship. That's the type of dominion that God is commissioning Adam and Eve to have right here, right off the bat in Genesis 1 and 2. I want you to go into the earth. I want you to tend it. I want you to steward it. I want you to cultivate it in such a way that maximum beauty, maximum fruitfulness is produced. And that's ultimately to the glory of God. Adam and Eve, I want the world to see what I'm like, that I'm a creator, that I'm a sustainer, that I am patient and tender, and that I care for that which I have created. Display my nature, display my goodness, display my glory in the way that you steward what I have given you. So these two notions of fellowship and glory, to me, summarize the purpose of our lives, what it means to be human fellowship with God, for the glory of God. You see in Habakkuk 2.14, this foreshadowing, for the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That was God's intention from the beginning, that this humanity that I've created would walk in close fellowship with me. They'd learn my ways. They would be my sons and daughters who, who have dominion over the earth in the way that I do, that's cultivating, that is fruitful, that is servant-hearted. And in that way, all of the, the universe, all of the cosmos will see who I am, what I'm like. Now, of course, I already mentioned that that was fundamentally marred with the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and then the ongoing rebellion of humanity down the generations. And then that comes to us. What's your purpose? Why are you alive ultimately? Now, if you've been in the church and grown up with these messages, nothing of what I'm saying is revolutionary or new, but, I'd, but I want to start off this journey of looking at the next steps of your life practically and your decision-making process. And I want to frame it within the bigger context and really challenge you to develop a lens or a framework through which you are discerning, 
through which you're making decisions that is congruent with, that is aligned with what I believe to be the greater purpose for which we were all created. But that's not going to be sufficient for me to simply say it's what I believe it to be. I'm challenging you right off the bat to do some searching yourself. What do you believe to be the ultimate purpose for your life? Now, we might want to say that it's these spiritual sounding answers of fellowship with God, the glory of God, or or however you would phrase that. When we look at the content of our life, if we look at our calendar, our chat logs, our credit card statements, we look at how we spend our resources, not just money, but our time, our relationships, our talents, it begins to betray what we actually think the purpose of our life is. Now, if we're not intentional about that, if we're not conscious about this process, then the world will imprint on us its purpose for our life. Maybe that's our family of origin, our parents' purpose for our life. I come from a very successful family in a worldly sense. My father is a highly successful businessman in terms of asset management. We have bank lawyers and doctors and military colonels. We have very successful people in our family. And so for many, many years, I have had a filter, a lens over my decision-making process that was largely influenced by my family of origin. Maybe it's the culture at large, which is a very secular, humanistic culture that says that the purpose of life is self-actualization for becoming fully who you were meant to become, for discovering yourself, for recapturing that innocent inner child. And that is subtly now overlaid over how we make decisions and think about the purpose for our lives. Or maybe it's an internal drive for success or notoriety or doing some good in the world. And none of what I'm saying is fundamentally right or wrong. What I'm saying is that we all have frameworks, lenses through which we are processing our decisions, processing the meaning and the purpose of our lives. And I'm challenging you, exhorting you right off the bat to do some deep thinking on what do you actually believe to be the meaning of the human life? I suppose there's a third part to the way I think about the purpose of life. If ultimately, if fundamentally we're made for fellowship with God, for the glory of God, and that that shalom, that reality was somehow marred in the garden, then perhaps the third piece is is that we are participating in recapturing that wholeness, that shalom. Many years ago, I was in Tunis, Tunisia, in North Africa, with a team, and I was departing from Tunisia early, coming back to the States. One of my teammates had to come back early to make a connection to go on a family vacation. So we were leaving a day before the rest of the team. He was the team administrator. He had been keeping all the receipts, and this was pre-electronic days uh, where everything was kept on phones and whatnot. He had a binder full of, I don't know, 600 receipts from our three weeks in Tunisia where we had to give an account for every penny that was spent on that trip. We were late waking up to catch our early flight. The taxi driver actually woke us up. And we threw everything together, jumped in the taxi cab, drove to the airport, and then stood in an insanely long customs line. We got to the front of that line and realized we hadn't filled out the correct form, had to go to the back of the line. By now, we're thinking we're going to miss the flight. Well, we finally get through customs, go through security. We find out the flight's been delayed just long enough that we might be able to catch it. And on the other side of security, the security guard pulled my friend Jonathan aside uh, for one of those random searches and started taking everything out of his bag. 
Well, it hadn't been properly packed in advance, but now is a mess. There was more stuff than could be fit back in the bag. And so we tried to stuff as much in as we could, but eventually he just had to kind of scoop up armfuls of his stuff and we took off running through the terminal. Well, as we're running about halfway to our gate, Jonathan steps on the headphones of his Discman and dislodges it from his arms. And when he does, it causes him to trip and throw his arms out. And his stuff went flying through the air, scattered all over the terminal. The problem was the binder that was full of those receipts was one of those items that was thrown up in the air. And it came open and about 600 receipts scattered through the air like a puff of smoke and came you know, floating back down to this nasty terminal floor. People were walking over them. It was a total mess. He was frustrated. I was inwardly laughing, but helped him to start to scoop all the receipts, all these kind of now dirty, crumpled receipts, just armfuls of them and stuffing them into his backpack, thinking, my goodness, this is going to be a complete mess to try to re-reconcile because he had very meticulously made sure they were all in order. They were grouped by category. They were chronologically ordered, but now is a total mess. And as I think about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I think about that story that here God has made Adam and Eve to be in fellowship with him, to tend and care for and steward and cultivate the earth. And then it was like in the Tunis airport in Genesis 3 when they rebelled against God, it was like that scattering of those receipts. Everything was ordered. Everything was perfect. It was in a state of wholeness. And now it's, it's all crumpled and muddied all over the airport floor. So what Jonathan had to do is on our eight-hour flight back to the States, somewhere over the Atlantic, he's, he's taking time. He's uncrumpling each receipt one by one, and he's slowly putting them back, kind of cleaning them off, putting them back in order, getting them back into chronological order, getting them back into their proper groups, so that when we got back to the States, he could give an account for the way we spent the money, and he needed everything reconciled in that sense. And I feel like that story captures well what I think part of our purpose is here on, on earth, this side of heaven, is we are in the ministry of reconciliation along with Jesus. You see in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, says that he makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And this is the key part to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's Jesus's ministry, his mission is to unite all things in him, to bring back together, to reconcile. And that's the word that's used in Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20 says, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So before we start to talk about decision-making, I needed to stop and frame our smaller stories in light of what I believe to be the, the larger story. That is, we're created for fellowship with God, made in his image, emotive, communicative, with rational minds, that we're made to have dominion over the earth, to steward it, to subdue it in the way that a gardener subdues his garden, to bring about maximum fruitfulness, maximum beauty in such a way that the glory of God is seen in the earth, the nature and the character of God through the way that we serve, through the way that we lay down our lives that something else might flourish. But since those callings were fundamentally marred in the garden, now we're part of this ministry of reconciliation, reconciling those three relationships, the man-God relationship, bringing people back into fellowship with God, the man-man relationship, reconciling relationships among one another. And man, do we need that today in our nation, in our culture, with all the tensions that have been going on. We need those peacemakers who will be known as the sons and daughters of God. 
And then the man-creation relationship, literal stewardship of the earth. And I'm not just talking about ecology, but in the way we do business, in the way we do family, in the way we do community and politics, in the way we do sports, entertainment, the way we do the arts and recreation. How are we bringing about maximum beauty and fruitfulness so that the world can see what God is actually like, this creative, tender, patient, kind, powerful, eternal, beautiful, magnificent God is being reflected through our literal physical contribution to the world as we make our journey through this life. One last exhortation here as we end this first installment, and that is to ponder life's brevity for just a moment. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, he says, look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Be careful, be vigilant, be mindful of how you utilize that most precious resource that we have, time. Understand what the will of the Lord is so that you can be prudent and wise in how you conduct your life. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In Psalm 39, 4 through 7 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Here, David is reflecting on the brevity of his life, the fleeting nature of his life, how small and vanishing it is in light of all eternity. Make me know my days. Make me know what is my end, that I would present to you a heart of wisdom. Translation, that I would not waste my life and fritter it away in light of its brevity. I've seen a diagram that portrays how many weeks there are in the average human life in America. In the exercise, you color in the boxes that represent the weeks you've already lived, and then you get a visual portrayal of the life you've lived that you can't get back, and then what's ahead of you that now you have a responsibility to steward. And it's a sobering exercise. So as we begin this journey together, I would challenge you to pause and reflect, and there's an exercise that you'll do in response to this first bit of content, to pause and reflect on the meaning of life, the teleology, the purpose by which we measure goodness, before we talk about more specific applications of decision-making. So what does it mean to live a good life? I would propose to you, it's this notion of fellowship with God, walking in communion with God for the glory of God, that as we are repairing the God-man relationship, the man-man relationship, the man-creation relationship. We are participating in the highest possible calling and in any number of expressions that could take through our lives and the ways that God has wired us uniquely. To me, all those streams lead back to this great river of fellowship with God for the glory of God, repairing those relationships that everyone else might enter into that same destiny as well. That's the end of this first session. You have a prompt for an exercise to do in response to this content. And then we will move on to session two where we'll look at the purpose of work. 